So my paper is an attempt to draw on philosophy to help elucidate some experiences that arose in the course of anthropological fieldwork. This paper really is an anthropology paper, so if you're not an anthropologist, uh, my apologies, and feel free to ask me any kind of question you want as we go along in case it's something is really obscure to you. You've had a chance already to uh, look at my uh, uh, first quotation there, and uh, so I don't think I need to read it. I'll just uh, move on from there. In July 2015, I found myself in the midst of conversations with a group of siblings I've known since I first visited the island of Mayotte 40 years earlier. They had been embroiled for a number of years in a bitter and very long-standing dispute concerning an accusation of sorcery that one sister had leveled against another. I had decided that on this visit I owed it to them and was expected by them to help resolve the dispute. This proved unsuccessful. Indeed, by the end of my stay, I heard about further accusations, new fires springing up faster than I could try to stamp them out. <coughs> I had discussed the conflict, between her, uh, the conflict between her two older sisters with a third sister who had been all along the calmest and the most objective. So when she confided that the oldest sister had also done sorcery so that her, the third sister's children, would do poorly at school, in my surprise and exasperation, I blurted out, but she can't have done this. Sorcery isn't real. What follows is a reflection on both my remark and on the broader context in which it was uttered. I want to think about sorcery through the lens of ethics. There are many ways to conceptualize ethics. My approach to ethics concerns practical judgment and what I've called ordinary ethics or ethical life rather than ethics in the sense of specifically hard problems, explicit questions, situations, or guidelines. I see the ethical as a dimension of human action and ethical considerations as part of our human life rather than as something outside, special, or transcendent. I begin with an Aristotelian preamble. Insofar as Aristotelian conceptions of ethics concern virtue, they must also attend to vice, a subject the anthropological literature has largely ignored. For Aristotelians, any given virtue is understood as the right balance under the circumstances between two vices, such that courage, for example, in a given context is the mean between fearfulness and foolhardiness, <coughs> or care between showing too little concern and paying too much. Since a given virtue is not stable in content and therefore not an objectification, but manifests as the right thing to do in a given situation, virtue and vice readily slip into one another. Hence, Aristotle's master or meta-virtue is wisdom, the appropriate exercise of judgment, of knowing and doing the best thing in the circumstances, but also realizing that it's not always easy to do so and sometimes impossible, and hence, too, that we must not rush to moralistic judgment of the actions or character of others or of ourselves. <coughs> Thus, our predilection for moralizing, for proclaiming the moral high ground, needs to be offset by reflexivity concerning whether our responses tend to the virtuous or the vicious, and recognizing the continuum between them. Such reflexivity, if it is to be serious, entails inquiring not only into our own judgments or values, but also, I shall argue, into our application of concepts, like that of sorcery, but also here that of the real and of ethics itself. So while we might want to distinguish epistemology from ethics, I suggest that ethics is also relevant when considering our use of concepts and that attending to concepts is critical when thinking about ethics. I'm moving here to what has come to be called ordinary ethics. I want to emphasize some features of the ordinary, in particular today, vulnerability. 
Sandra Logier, a French philosopher, observes that thinkers like Stanley Cavell, Vina Das, and Cora Diamond, quote, connect the idea of the vulnerability of the human to the vulnerability of our life forms. I turn this to ask how humans are vulnerable to certain life forms. When the con where the concept of sorcery is live, it both addresses people's vulnerability to one another and renders them vulnerable to the concept itself. <coughs> but encountering sorcery in a fieldwork setting also reveals what Logier calls, quote, the moral capacities or competences of ordinary people. And that's what I will be illustrating later in the lecture. Ethics, says Logier, quote, is a commitment not to treat anyone as negligible, and it is a sensibility to the details that matter in lived situations. This is surely a call to the anthropologist, no less than to our subjects. Hence, when I once argued on practical grounds that we should distinguish the anthropology of ethics from the ethics of anthropology, <coughs> I integrate them here. As Jean-Favre Sada has taught anthropologists, the subject of sorcery or witchcraft is largely the talk about sorcery and witchcraft, and the ethnographer is inevitably embedded in that talk. Speaking is, of course, central to the broad position associated with the ordinary. Following John Austin, we can show how words and concepts offer fine-tuned ethical discriminations. That's when we differentiate between having done something by accident or by mistake. <coughs> Cavell and Diamond have developed another point in Austin, namely that, with respect to speaking, the truth value of utterances in the sense of correspondence truth is not always the central issue. Quoting Logier again, she says of Cavell that he, quote, defines our relations to words and expressions in terms of voice and claim, and that what is in question is the fortunes and misfortunes of ordinary human vulnerable expression the search for or loss of the right tone or the right word. This is at once an instantiation of Aristotelian practical judgment and a matter of acknowledgment, of acknowledging those to whom our speech is directed and acknowledging that a given utterance, its tone and wording is ours. <coughs> Consider now the talk of the ethnographer from a different angle. There is a passage in Truth and Message where Gadamer describes two different kinds of conversation. There is first, I'm just reading the quote here, a conversation that we have with someone simply in order to get to know him, i.e. to discover his standpoint and his horizon. This is not a true conversation in the sense we're not seeking agreement concerning an object, but the specific contents of the conversation are only a means to get to know the horizon of the other person. Examples or oral examinations are some kinds of conversation between doctor and patient. Just as in a conversation when we have discovered the standpoint and horizon of the other person, his ideas become intelligible without our necessarily having to agree with him. The person who thinks historically comes to understand the meaning of what has been handed down without necessarily agreeing with it or seeing himself in it. <coughs> but this means, continues Gadamer, that we have, as it were, withdrawn from the situation of trying to reach an agreement. By including from the beginning the other person's standpoint in what he is saying to us, we are making our own standpoint safely unattainable. The text that is understood historically is forced to abandon its claim that it is uttering something true. We think we understand when we see the past from a historical standpoint, that is, place ourselves in the historical situation, and seek to reconstruct the historical horizon. In fact, however, we have given up the claim to find in the past any truth valid and intelligible for ourselves. <coughs> Thus, this acknowledgment of the otherness of the other, which makes him the object of objective knowledge, involves the fundamental suspension of his claim to truth. 
Now, if you had to choose the ethical high ground here, I suspect most contemporary anthropologists would opt for the full or true conversation, in which we do not suspend the other's claim to truth or render our own standpoint safely unattainable. <coughs> and yet, this is not always the position of anthropology or evident of ethical sensibility. Take my own declaration that sorcery isn't real. What had I done here? What lack of tact or understanding was this? What poor judgment or violation of my own rules of conduct or my anthropological sensibility? Or had I finally shifted to an authentic conversation in Gadamer's sense, one in which our respective claims to truth were at issue? <coughs> Where does the high road lie? Perhaps this is an ethical situation in the sense of Derrida, namely that the ethical moment is characterized by its undecidability, one in which there is no evident right way forward. But whether this is an excuse or confession, and whether I spoke by accident or by mistake, are not the questions I want to address. The point is rather how each of us lives with concepts, concepts like sorcery, ethnography, judgment, and ethics. <coughs> the rest of this paper addresses talk about the concept, act, and condition that Kibushi speakers in Mayotte call Voriki. Uh, Mayotte is the island uh, on the upper left there. Uh, you see there's a red underlining there, and it says belongs to France. And uh, here is the larger picture uh, where it's located off the coast of Africa. Um, <clears throat> so the paper addresses the concept acting condition that Kabushi speakers call Voriki. Mayotte's an island in the Western Indian Ocean and since 2011 a département of France. Population is Muslim, Kibushi is a dialect of Malagasy, and for reasons I will elaborate shortly, I choose to translate Voriki as sorcery. I'm concerned with Vodiki as a kind of ethical problem, both for inhabitants of Mayotte and for their anthropologist. This is not the problem of vicious behavior per se, that is, actions d directed deliberately against the well-being of others, that is, sorcery itself, but rather the deployment of the concepts Vodiki and the concept sorcery and ultimately the concept of ethics. One could say I'm interested in the ethical life of concepts. Sorcery and ethics are each concepts, concepts that form part of anthropological discourse. I suggest that some of the confusion evident in the debates in the literature about the nature of both ethics and sorcery is that anthropologists have held a rather naive view of what it means to have a concept, as though it were contained in the expression or definition of a word. We have not always meant the same thing each time we use the word ethics or the word sorcery, or virtually any word in the anthropological vocabulary. But a larger confusion is that we have often thought that the problem could be resolved simply by recourse to more specific definitions. <coughs> by discriminating, for example, between ethics and morality or between witchcraft and sorcery. Such that in any given instance we could say this is ethics and that is morality or this is sorcery and that is witchcraft. In other words, we thought the resolution to our problem, a problem that Clifford Geertz once referred to as semantic anxiety, should be to fix more precise definitions and stricter classification. As though we could lay out our concepts according to a set of binary distinctive features on the model of phonemes or the diagrams once found in ethno-semantics. However, interesting concepts do not work this way. Take, for example, the concepts of nature and culture. <coughs> it takes us down a wrong path to provide them with precise definitions or to conclusively resolve what their relationship to each other is. I take it this was the view of Levi-Strauss, if for somewhat different reasons than the argument I'm going to follow. In other work, I've suggested that the situation may be clarified with reference to another concept, that of incommensurability. If we consider the two phenomena do not have a common external measure or cannot be distinguished along a binary distinction, 
they may not then be mutually exclusive to each other. Instead, consideration of their differences is likely to produce a long conversation and an overlap in practice. One can think of the relationship of Islam and spirit possession in Mayotte in this way, or anthropology and sociology as intellectual traditions in our own milieu, <coughs> or nature and culture in the human condition writ large. I stand by this argument, but here I follow a different one as laid out by philosopher Cora Diamond in her essay, Losing Your Concepts, published significantly in a journal titled Ethics. Diamond distinguishes concepts from narrower forms of classification. Quote, grasping a concept is not a matter just of knowing how to group things under that concept. It is being able to participate in life with the concept. Taking the concept of human being, she says, to be able to use the concept of human being is to be able to think about human life and what happens in it. It is not to be able to pick human beings out from other things or recommend that certain things be done to them or by them. <coughs> Diamond contrasts this with what she critiques as the limiting, quote, the limiting philosophical view of language and the idea in it that if a word has descriptive content at all, that content can be expressed by an evaluatively neutral term. Description itself is thought of as something that can be pulled out of the context of human life and interests within which descriptions have their normal place. Close quote. This is what anthropologists frequently do as they abstract from their field notes. Against this, Diamond says, quote, I have claimed that the capacity to use a descriptive term is a capacity to participate in the life from which that word comes, and that what it is to describe is many different kinds of activity. If my thoughtless remark is equivalent to the accusation laid at Evans Pritchard by post-colonial critics that he considers Azande knowledge inferior to his own, Diamond's distinction here is close to the point made and then demonstrated by Evans Pritchard when he said that we could never understand or appreciate Zande thought if we understood its terms laid out objectively as though they were museum objects, hence removed from life. He made the same point with respect to newer forms of social description. Evans Pritchard is uh, the classically famous British anthropologist who in the 1930s and 40s wrote really great works including a book called Witchcraft Oracles of Magic Among the Azande, which is the really the best book ever written uh, by an anthropologist on the sub subject. <coughs> <coughs> what Diamond is pointing to is a kind of lived social understanding that differs from the ways in which concepts are used in anthropology abstractly and for comparison. Thus, for example, when I turn from the Kabushi concept of Voriki, which I translate as sorcery, to describe sorcery and witchcraft in anthropological discourse. When anthropologists compare, they ask whether a certain practice in a given society can be put under a specific anthropological description. <coughs> Here, the category of sorcery, as we underst anthropologists understand it, whether the criteria are sufficient to include it. In the more interesting cases, the phenomenon is strong or distinctive enough that we need either to expand our original concept or develop a new concept by which to describe it. Our life with anthropological concepts is different from the lives of those who use the concepts in other ways to understand, <coughs> diagnose, accuse, attack, justify, suffer, heal, or otherwise describe their acts, relations, conditions, and one another. How anthropologists live with a concept like sorcery or taboo or kinship, etc., is different from how Kibushi speakers live with the concept of Voriki, how they participate in the life of which the concept is part and to which it contributes. The difference I'm attempting to elucidate here is not the same as that of emic versus etic, particular in general, or token and type, understood on a purely cognitive or semantic register. 
nor does it concern rationality in contrast to irrationality, as the older debate to which Evans Pritchard contributed described it. Rather, it concerns different ways of living with a concept. Concepts are not the kind of thing to which ethics is ordinarily applied, and yet when we speak of different ways of living, we are in the realm of ethics, at least as I use or live with the concept of ethics, or for which I can perhaps expand its use. Ethics, as I understand and use the concept, is less a matter of following rules than of exercising practical judgment. Building on Wittgenstein and Cavell, Diamond says this applies to language itself. She writes, quote, we think of learning to use a term as learning to follow the rules for that use. We think of language in terms of rules fixing what can and cannot be done. But the most essential thing about language is that it is not fixed in this way. Learning to use a term <coughs> is coming into life with that term where possibilities are to a great extent to be made. Following an insight in Malinowski's book Argonauts, uh, Evans Pritchard famously said that the Azande could not get rid of their concept, their concept of witchcraft, which the Azande word is mangu, as it was part of the very texture of their thought. By contrast, Diamond, like historians of science and philosophy, is capable of documenting the loss of concepts in European life. Indeed, she begins with Alastair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, whose very title indicates the loss of a whole set of interrelated ethical concepts, and his argument laments that fact. The historicity of witchcraft and sorcery in Africa is an open and valid empirical question. I think Evans Pritchard's remark was incredibly insightful at the time, and indeed, the concept of witchcraft appears to have remained resilient among Azande since the 1920s. In my encounters over a 40-year period with a single community in Mayotte, I would say that accusations and concerns about the prevalence of Voriki were louder on my latest visit in 2015 than I had previously known them. But at the same time, that the concept itself, as I'll show, is now more vulnerable, open to question in ways it was not previously. This does not, of course, mean that people are free to choose whether or not to believe in Voriki, or that their primary relation to the concept was ever one of belief. Moreover, wherever across Africa reformist Islam or Pentecostal Christianity demand rejection of the past, they appear, in fact, to heighten rather than to lower the salience and prevalence of witchcraft. Losing your concepts is not as easy as losing your keys. Dropping a concept may be more difficult than acquiring one. Learning new concepts is a perennial challenge for ethnographers, and here again, Diamond is helpful. She says, quote, if we get rid of the idea that using a concept is a matter of using it to pick out what falls under the concept and what does not, if we instead see that life with a concept involves doings and thinkings and understandings of many sorts into which one's grasp of the concept enters in different ways, then we can accept that coming to understand a conceptual life other than our own involves exercise of concepts belonging to that life. This again resonates with Evans Pritchard, who remarks on how he drew on Zandi concepts to organize his own life in the field. Clearly all this is relevant for discussions of what we call cultural relativism and perhaps also for ethical relativism. Despite the fact that Evans Pritchard showed the value and rationality of the concept of witchcraft for Zande, he has been criticized for his superior attitude, even and perhaps especially by people who are also critical of relativism. No conceptual sleight of hand on the part of self-identified ontologists can resolve this problem. As anthropologists, we are always situated and always divided in our attachments to diverse forms of life. The point I want to make about relativism is that it is not only itself an intellectual problem, 
but a practical one, and hence even itself an ethical matter. That is, it's ethical to decide when to be ethically relative and when not to be. It's not subject to a rule or to abstract schemes of classification or quasi-philosophical assertion, but a matter of continuous judgment, that is discernment, intrinsic to the form of life that is the activity of anthropology, and perhaps also to the form of life that is citizenship in a pluralist society, or as Hannah Arendt argues, simply of living with others. In other words, my mistake was, not, was in not acknowledging that insofar as Vodiki is a concept that belongs to life in my ought, it is real there, even if it does not belong, and hence is not real, to my ordinary life in Canada. The poor judgment on my part concerned which life I was participating in at that time. Let me turn then directly to sorcery. An earlier anthropological literature debated whether witchcraft and sorcery were one and the same thing or distinct. The consensus was not to distinguish them, a conclusion that makes sense insofar as they are not discrete ontological phenomena, not discrete objects that exist aside from their cultural elaboration in particular societies, just as ethics and morality are not. Nevertheless, the result has been that a paradigm of witchcraft has dominated in the literature, leaving in the shadow related but different and possibly less exotic or flamboyant practices. Much of the witchcraft material is what could be called extraordinary, full of fantasy, symbolic inversions, and other real bodily violence, especially perpetrated on people accused of witchcraft, or at the purely symbolic uh, level, as we just mentioned, uh, Halloween. In the older anthropological model, insofar as the terms were distinguished, sorcery was described as deliberate and witchcraft as the product of some kind of primal or acquired drive or condition such that it could be carried out unconsciously. The distinction proved problematic when applied to actual ethnography, where matters of volition are often expressly found, as in hiring a witch, deliberately killing someone for body parts, and especially in extorting a confession. Yet witchcraft describes an inverted nocturnal world, often one in which the soul separates from the body in order to conduct its nefarious business, in which witches consume their fellows or harness technology in mystical ways. The elaboration of witchcraft in this sense is evident today in places like the Congo or Togo, as described re respectively by Philip de Bourg and Charles Pio. In the florid account of witches, the ambiguities that attend the matters of intentionality, desire, volition, and will are either heightened or covered over. A central existential problem for the members of these societies is whether one might actually be a witch oneself. The very large question of meaning, in the sense of meaning what we say or do, attaching responsibility to our own actions, is left open. Close inspection of human motivation is displaced by symbolic excess. However, this is mostly not the case in Mayotte. A further point is the following. In places like Congo or Togo, witchcraft comes to be understood as an essential feature or attribute of persons. Once an accusation is made and verified, or a suspicion is confirmed, the perpetrator is defined as a witch, and their subsequent actions are understood relative to that identity. Perpetrators are understood to have inherited or acquired a quality, substance, or mode of being such that they are witches. Witchcraft is understood as an essential quality of certain persons, their mode of being. Put the other way, persons can be distinguished as either witches or non-witches. A problem people in such societies face is in not knowing when they might be defined or discovered to be a witch. Everyone is vulnerable. It is far easier to be placed under the label than to remove it. Same is true for mental illness in, in uh, Canada. 
In Mayotte, the concept of Vodaki is broad enough to include fantastical images, but its common focus is actually quite mundane. Vodaki is not glamorous, exotic, or magical. It's ordinary, if unwelcome and ugly, part of the way things are, the way human beings and their relationships are. It catches envy, jealousy, aggression, etc. when they appear, and it elaborates them. It is deeply interpersonal, and when it arises, deeply troubling. Moreover, as found in Mayotte, and as I use the concept, Sorcery is an attribute in the first instance not of persons, but of acts. Sorcery is something one does or commits. Specifically, it is a matter of using knowledge to harm rather than to help. For example, someone versed in medicines might deliberately give a client the wrong one. Anyone can do so or can hire someone to do it on their behalf. It is the act that is distinguished as sorcery. Someone would only be called a sorcerer if they had a history of such acts attributed to them. This approximates the distinction Foucault makes in Volume 1 of the History of Sexuality, where he notes a historical transition in European societies from recognizing acts with same-sex partners to essentializing persons as same-sex oriented, that is, from committing homosexual acts to being homosexuals. And of course it applies not only in discourses of sexuality, but in other fields such as criminality and mental illness. One can distinguish drinking too much from being an alcoholic and so forth. Such conceptual distinctions are ethically significant. As people in Mayotte use the concept, Vodaki applies in the first instance to acts and only rarely becomes an attribute of persons. One can be forgiven for an act of Vodaki. Nevertheless, there is a general stickiness to Vodaki. By stickiness, I mean not only that the label of sorcerer begins to adhere to people accused of acts of sorcery, but also that once an accusation has been voiced, all parties find it difficult to retract or move beyond it. An event of Vodaki generally begins with a, di a diagnosis on the part of an astrologer, a healer, or a spirit possessing someone, possibly in response to an existing suspicion. An authoritative diagnosis is generally one made by someone at arm's length from the sufferer. A diagnosis is not an accusation. As my mentor in the field, Tumbu Vita, a notable healer of sorcery, repeatedly pointed out, it is wrong for the diagnostician or curer to name the sorcerer. It's kind of malpractice even when he or she knows their identity. The ideal and most common scenario is simply to have the sorcery extracted and move on. But once an accusation is made, what is stuck with it, no matter the protestations of dismay and innocence on the part of the accused? As one accusation leads to another, things get stickier and people find themselves more and more stuck in accusations, recriminations, and suspicions. It's difficult to come clean, to become unstuck, to move forward. Vodaki is live in a world where other people's attention, care, and actions count, where people are products of dense social relations. It often lies quiescent, but in recent years there is a sense in Mayotte that expectations of mutual support, especially between adult siblings, are no longer being met. Whereas the language of kinship is such that mothers' sisters and fathers' brothers are respectively also mothers and fathers to their respective siblings' children, and sometimes even considered parents to each other, this has become less manifest in practice. It's a hard lesson and one that finds a ready interpretation in Vodaki. In other words, accusations index a kind of resistance and refusal to changes in personhood that have accompanied the incorporation of Mayotte as an integral part of the French state, as people are further embedded in the capitalist economy and state bureaucracy that prioritizes individuation, private property, individual bank accounts, and the ideal of the bounded nuclear family household.
As one young man said when I asked him in 2015 about his Muraba, which is the extended family or practical kindred that was once the most salient unit of kinship, he said, there's no more Muraba, it's all la famille now. He drew on a French word and concept that I had not heard before but that has now become necessary. Voriki announces disregard, disinterest, and viciousness. If it expresses moral unease, equally, living with the concept is uneasy. When and how is it right to suspect it, to raise it, to respond to it, perhaps even to practice it? Voriki is unheimlich, quite literally, since in its most salient manifestations, it is the product of people with whom you should be at home. <coughs> Voriki is understood, as I've said, as an act. It attributes the misfortune of someone to the deliberate act of another. The act is occult in the sense of hidden, but it is explicit on the part of the perpetrator and evident to God. Despite accounts of calling on spirits to harm victims, at bottom, the means are not paranormal or extraordinary, as frequently described for other societies. They occur at two registers, the material and the ethical. Materially, Vodaki is understood as deliberately applying a kind of knowledge for bad rather than good ends, as when, as when an astrologer provides a client with the wrong date on which to carry out something important. In neighboring Madagascar, the act of Vodaki is often quite explicitly described as poisoning. So it's very material. It's not exotic in the sense of, of supernatural. On the ethical register, the act of sorcery is one of privately rendering oneself accountable before the fact for a misfortune that may befall the intended victim. This is central to the concept of Vodaki as I've come to understand it from talking with many people in my yacht, albeit it's not explicitly stated this way. Accountability is assumed, that is taken on, in the act of sorcery. Indeed, assuming responsibility for someone's anticipated misfortune is what the act of sorcery most fundamentally is. It consists of a performative act or acts whose aim and consequence are not to materially produce the misfortune, which is said to be in God's hands, but to take responsibility for it. It is not performed before any human witness, but only in God's hearing. It is to say, in effect, I acknowledge that should so-and-so suffer misfortune, it is my will and desire that this happen, and I am willing to take responsibility for my words. The performative act renders coate and certain the wish for harm to befall another. One could say that it acknowledges the anticipation of schadenfreude, the pleasure in another's misfortune, that it realizes the intention. In other words, I'm saying that the act of Vodaki is understood to be one of taking on accountability before the fact. Hence, the ethical register is intrinsic and fundamental. Whatever the talk of material means or the assistance of spirits, the act is understood in the first instance to take place on the ethical plane. Whether or not the act is revealed through a subsequent accusation, the sorcerer understands from the start that he or she is accountable. He's a, he or she is accountable to God and to themselves. Their act establishes that whatever God's plans for the other person, they will be happy enough to see that person suffer that they are willing eventually to face God for it. This means also that sorcery is not subject to di direct human punishment. It's assumed that sorcerers receive their just desserts in the afterlife. Vodaki, then, is most fundamentally a matter of accepting responsibility before the fact for the harm to befall someone else rather than materially producing it. There's nothing fantastical or paranormal about this. Moreover, people are very clear that Vodaki cannot kill. Death comes only from God. That is, no human can be accountable for the death of another. This is actually precisely the inverse of the Zande case, where the Zande told Evans Pritchard that 
The only way people die is through witchcraft by other people. There is no natural death. Nevertheless, in my audience, people talk about Vordeki as they live with the concept, the distinction between assuming responsibility and material causality is often elided. And this is precisely one of the mistakes I made in saying that sorcery is not real. I've been speaking, because as, as an ethical claim, of course, it could be perfectly real in our understandings of reality, right? Um, I've been speaking of Vodaki as a concept. It should be clear that in its social manifestation, Vodaki is less a matter of practicing sorcery than of suffering its effects, diagnosing and healing the condition, and occasionally accusing an ostensible perpetrator or facing an actually and presumably in most cases sincerely denies the accusation. How many actual cases of sorcery there are, I have no idea. Probably very few. My stance, that is sorcery in the sense of making, of committing the act. My stance toward Vodaki has changed over time. It's not that I started out closed, skeptical, or insensitive. Rather, I think I was relatively receptive, acknowledging like a good Gaudamarian that the other might be correct and trying to figure out how that might be so. I was deeply engaged in following healers and I found it exciting and fulfilling work as I reached a fuller understanding of what was at hand. The diagnoses, interpretation, and cures often made sound psychological and social sense. But my grasp of the concept was always as an outsider, albeit a sympathetic one. I did not, for example, consider that I could either practice sorcery myself or fall victim to it. Actually, local people were worried that I wouldn't be practicing sorcery. It was a compliment to me about how much ethnographic knowledge I gained. Once you have the knowledge, you're tempted to use it. But nobody thought I could be victim of it myself. While that stance was respectful as a guest and student, it came to seem insufficient by later visits. I had learned a great deal about Vodaki and its treatment from Tumbu Vita and his wife, Moheja Salim. I had also become part of their family. With the death of Tumbu and Moheja, each a person of strong and upright character, their adult children experienced increased vulnerability. There came as well expectations that I speak and act with them in critical situations. During mortuary celebrations for the parents, my siblings treated me as one of their number. When the suspicion arose that the siblings were victims of one another's sorcery, and with the knowledge that they were victims of one another's accusations, I felt I was expected to step in, and I came to expect it of myself. The conflict began between the two oldest siblings, who were then in their 50s, over succession to the spirits that had possessed their parents. I've described the dynamics elsewhere, but the key point here is that the oldest sister, Nuriati, who was already possessed by many of these spirits, was evidently disconcerted and plausibly envious when the next youngest sister, Mariam, actively possessed for the first time, appeared to receive all the spirits. Nuriati was serving as the healer, presiding over Mariam's initiation, and when the installation of the spirits did not proceed smoothly, Mariam accused Nuriati of deliberately undermining the process i.e. of committing Vodaki against her by doing bad medicine rather than good. The accusation was supported by an outside healer who announced that Nuriati had come to him for medicine to render the spirits non-viable in her sister. Mariam subsequently exhibited severe symptoms for over a year and went in search of several distant cures. Rising then in Mariam, the spirits asserted they had been given poison by Nuriati and that Mariam herself would only be healed when they were. One of the spirits, who had been closely associated with their mother, spoke through, through Mariam to say that Nuriati had gone to his own spirit home to ask him to be her friend and to live with her rather than with Mariam, but that he had refused. Mariam's version prevailed. In humiliation, Nuriati moved away to the village of her husband, thereby appearing to confirm her lack of interest in supporting her younger siblings. 
Both sisters were hurt and angry. By 2015, Nuriati's husband and older son had died. Nuriati was ill and people felt very sorry for her, myself included. I arrived in my yacht determined to do what I could. I didn't have great illusions that I could resolve the problem, and as it turned out, I failed. But I made an effort, and this forced me to take some kind of stand. I was no longer the neutral observer that I had once at least attempted to be. I discussed the matter with the five sisters, two brothers, and other kin, all of whom initially said they were deeply unhappy with the current situation, supported my efforts, and wanted nothing more than a resolution, and wished for their oldest sibling to come home. Nuriati herself longed to return, but she refused to acknowledge any responsibility, without which, Mariam asserted, she could not be reconciled. Not only was the quarrel unresolved, but further accusations between other siblings had taken place in the meantime. The siblings were in disarray. The siblings not directly involved were forced to pick sides or to make it look as though they had, or made to look as though they had. There were hurt feelings, resentment, sadness, and a good deal of embarrassment that they couldn't get along. Maniam seemed happily engaged with her thriving children and grandchildren, and at first she told me the quarrel was over. Yet she fluctuated in what she said about Nuriati. She lamented they were no longer close as they had been before their mother died, but she also said bad things about her. A few days later, I visited Nuriati, whom I had not seen in many years. As soon as we were alone, she began to describe her situation. She looked straight at me throughout, her eyes occasionally glistening with tears, but never breaking down. Her young, younger siblings, she said, quote, threw me out like an empty sack of rice once the contents were consumed. At first, she told me she didn't know why they were avoiding her, but as our conversation continued, she admitted the root of the problem was sorcery. She volunteered that spirits had visited Mariam and announced that she, Nuriati, had done sorcery to make Mariam sick. This was confirmed to Mariam by another healer who had once been Nuriati's own apprentice. We talked about other family members, and she laughed over an old story in which two elderly kinsmen had each accused the other of doing Vodaki against him. At this point, I asked Nuriati, a woman who had followed her father's career as an extractor, that is, healer of sorcery, from those diagnosed with it, whether sorcery in general was real. To my surprise, she said she didn't think so. She said it's just the sufferer's rohu that feels it. Rohu means a person's consciousness, soul, or being. In other words, the experience of feeling a victim to sorcery may be real, but not necessarily as the direct effect of someone's malevolent action or intention, but of one's personal feeling or experience. Nuriati mentioned several attempts at mediation by senior relatives, but Mariam had remained unsatisfied. When I said her younger siblings complained she never visited them, she laughed bitterly and said, how can I visit? What would I do there? They don't like me. As she is their older sibling, they should visit her first. Quote, a child visits their mother before the mother visits the child. She concluded, what is going to happen? One or the other of us will die, and then what? Suggesting the vanity of maintaining the quarrel and the risk that it might never be concluded. As soon as she discovered where I had been, Mariam interrogated me. I reported that Nuriati was sad and wanted an end to the situation. She said that, did she? retorted Mariam. Mariam then said Nuriati had been ill-disposed to them since their father's death. Nuriati had done Vodaki against her, making her very sick. Each time Nuriati came to visit, Mariam was sick afterwards. She went to the doctors in the hospital, but they found nothing wrong. I said, illness comes from God, not from Vodaki. Mariam retorted, if you ask God for something, he always gives it to you. If you ask for something good, it, comes, it often comes slowly. But if you ask for something bad, it can come right away. 
Here she was confirming my interpretation that Vodiky is, in fact, a product of what one says, one's invention. I tried other tactics. I said that back in her father's day, it was forbidden for sorcery extractors to name the sorcerer. The healer who named Nuriyati had since died. Perhaps he died as a result of the act. Maniam said she didn't believe at first it was Nuriyati, not until this healer came to ask her forgiveness. He was Nuriyati's own apprentice. They'd worked closely together. Now he told Maniam it was her older sister who had done this to her. I told her that the apprentice in question had repeatedly fabricated things to me in the past, which was in fact the case. He used to tease me about things that weren't true. She said maybe the problem was just Shetuan, and I agreed. Shetuan are unnamed and generalized devilish spirits understood to tempt, pollute, and harm people. The term is often used when people behave badly and no one wants to apportion blame. Now, said Mariam, the whole family is caught by Shetuan that make people distrust each other and sow trouble. Mariam was close to tears as she said it was very bad for siblings not to look out for each other. Other families were not like this, she said, and she was embarrassed. People joked behind her back, saying, this is the family where no one visits each other. I reinforced this by saying, surely their dead parents were unhappy. She agreed, saying she often saw them at night in her sleep on this very terrace where we were sitting and where they used to relax. We concluded that the source of the quarrel might be Shetuan and that we should gather the family to conduct a Muslim prayer and sacrifice to remove them. The only problem was lack of sufficient men, as their brother Musa was unlikely to appear. Musa himself was quite aggrieved, telling me that Kin no longer cared for each other. His sisters, in turn, complained that he never visited them. Someone outside the family first whispered to me that it was now Mariam who was doing sorcery. It had shifted from one sister to the other, and it was now aimed at the brother. This was why Musa stayed away. A third sister, Amina, who you saw in this picture here, that's Amina, um, explained that Musa's wife, Hidayah, had seen a demon hovering over their bed at night. She went to an astrologer to ask the meaning of it. He told her the evil creature was sent by Mariam. Musa stopped Amina on the path and asked to speak privately. She was shocked when he told her that Mariam was doing Vodaki against him. Amina then started seeing their parents in her sleep, crying and very sad. Musa was sick, concluded Amina, because their parents were angry. So another explanation. On Amina's advice, Musa agreed to have a prayer held on his behalf. Amina didn't tell him that a family spirit, formerly in their mother and now rising in Mariam, was advising her on the performance. The spirit said to hold it in the village of Musa's second wife so that Hidayah wouldn't know. They held an elaborate ceremony with a number of experts called in and various medicines for Musa and food to feed the healers and reciters. But Amina was the only member of the family, aside from Musa, who attended. Musa improved, but subsequently he accosted Amina and furiously accused her of being in cahoots with Mariam. He said he wouldn't come to see her anymore, and indeed he hasn't shown up since. Musa had a daughter raised by Amina who was to receive a, plot, a house plot adjacent to hers. But Musa held his daughter's wedding at his own home, did not invite Mariam, and refused to let his daughter accept the house plot. For Amina, event like, events like weddings should be planned and produced cooperatively by the entire family. The sisters were very hurt. When Musa did not turn up to greet them at the end of Ramadan, Amina speculated that perhaps Hidayah had done medicine in order to make him distrust his sisters. Note she called this medicine rather than Vodiki. Mariam eventually admitted to me that she knew that Musa had accused her of Vodaki against him. But as he was avoiding all the siblings, she concluded the problem must be Shetuan. 
Amina's husband, Suf, said that Musa was acting badly in ignoring his sisters and refusing to hold a mediation. Suf said that if you feel you are suffering from vodiki, you should recite certain verse, verses of the Quran to yourself and it will go away. In effect, both Maryam and Suf were re reframing the problem of vodiki with reference to Islam. That evening, I asked Amina for her thoughts. She suggested that the, that the apprentice was at the root of the problem. He had independently gone, gone to both Mariam and Amina to tell them he had given Nuriyati medicine to, so the spirits would not turn out well in Mariam. He had told them to go ask Nuriyati, and if she denied it, to ask her to come with them to confront him. When Nuriyati did not agree to do so, everyone assumed the accusation had been correct. That was also the conclusion reached by the various elders who had tried to mend things between the sisters. But meanwhile, the apprentice had died. Amina went on to say that when Musa failed to invite Nuriyati to his daughter's wedding, Nuriyati had spitefully done medicine so that he would be at odds with all his siblings. At least, this is what the spirits who rose in Mariam had announced. This explained why, although he accused only Mariam of conducting sorcery against him, he shunned all the others. Amina felt caught between her older sisters. Upset that no one in the family was paying attention to any of the others, she had sought a diviner in a neighboring village, and he told her that Nuriyati had done the medicine so that as long as no one paid attention to her, she would ensure the others didn't get along with each other. One accusation of Vodaki thereby building on another. One evening I went with Amina to call up the spirits in Mariam. I can't go into detail about spirit possession here, but if you can ask them about it later. I asked for a male spirit with whom I had had a very good relation when he had appeared in their mother. The spirit said the problems in the family were large, but he got very agitated when I suggested they might not be caused by Vodaki. The spirit said, if you don't believe me, I will leave now, but I coaxed him to stay. He said heatedly that Nuriyadi had made Mariam sick. Nuriyadi had not stood up to acknowledge the situation, did not confront her accuser, did not help Mariam while she was ill, and did not take maternal leadership when their parents died. The spirit said he was sure, sure Mariam would not visit Nuriyadi for a reconciliation. This could only happen if Nuriyadi came to her. Moreover, they would have to call a healer to remove Shaitwan before they could hold either a Muslim prayer or a mediation. If we remove the Shaitwan, Musa might come to his senses and participate. The spirit here was much blunter than Mariam herself had been. He accused me of not accepting his presence in Mariam, but only in his mother, in her mother. He said that as I was in my aunt for only a short time, I would be unlikely to manage a reconciliation. He rejected my implication that Mariam ought to step forward and take the high road. He said Nuriyati wanted a reconciliation only now that she herself was sick and alone. He rejected my idea that each sister asked forgiveness and goodwill of the other. During our conversation, Amina looked down at the ground and said virtually nothing. When the spirit left, Mariam came to herself and asked what had transpired. She then said, contrary to the spirit, that she was willing to go to Nuriyati's and to hold a ceremony to remove Shaitwan, though she predicted that Nuriyati would reject the idea that Shaitwan were at issue. It's evident that Mariam was conflicted. While at one level she felt badly and wanted to resolve the conflict, at another she remained deeply angry with her sister and was telling me that no true reconciliation was possible unless her feelings were to change. This is what the Shaitwan represent. As Amina told me afterwards, the spirit follows the host. If the host is angry, so is the spirit. If the host is sad, so is the spirit. The spirit will always side with the host. However, Amina did not identify Mariam with the spirit and explained that her spirit had been angry with Nuriyati already well before their mother had died. 
Amina added insightfully that a person needs to want the Shetuan gone. Otherwise, you can hold the treatment to remove the Shetuan, but nothing will improve. Amina and I were keen on all of us visiting Nuriati again, but the morning of the planned excursion, Mariam shouted to her younger brother that she wouldn't go, and he said that in that case he wouldn't either. Amina was annoyed with Mariam's behavior, but explained they were afraid of further recriminations. Despite the setback, Amina thought we should go ahead and try to hold another prayer for the siblings. The younger brother said no reconciliation would work without Musa's participation. I reached Musa by phone, and he agreed to meet me in Amina's where I was staying. He did not turn up, and so I only ran into him several days later at a wedding that both of us happened to be attending. Amina was there as well, though Musa did not acknowledge her presence. Musa greeted me, and I asked to speak to him in private. When I suggested a reconciliation, he got angry, and he prodded me with his finger. Did I think that by dropping in here I could fix things? When I asked why he wouldn't visit his sisters, he told me to ask them. He said they knew perfectly well why, but they were ashamed to admit it. He wouldn't visit them, and he didn't want them to visit him. Even Amina, I asked? He said, Amina is like a TV set, tuned now to this channel and now to that. He was adamant that I could do nothing and that he was not ready to budge. And the conflict could persist until they died. Musa charged me angrily that I couldn't know what was in his heart and that even if one could fix, fix things by speech, it wouldn't help if there was no real change of heart. In other words, I couldn't know how he felt and I couldn't change his feelings. His point was the same as Mariam's and Amina's. Without a change in feelings, a verbal reconciliation would be useless. Amidst all these recriminations, Amina had been the most level-headed and the sibling I most counted on to assist the reconciliation. Here's another sibling and, um, who was not involved in this. Therefore, I was disconcerted when she revealed one evening that the spirits had long since informed her that her children's problems in school had been caused by Nuriati. When I suggested that maybe the spirits in Mariam weren't objective, Amina said she had thought so too, and she'd sought out the spirits who had possessed their parents in hosts far afield. Two different spirits in two different mediums had said the same thing. The problem stemmed from the eldest sister. They didn't make allusions, but said it directly. It was at this point that I expostulated that sorcery was not real. My remark took me by surprise. It was not only tactless and wrong, but an instant instance of what Diamond has termed deflection, which she describes as, quote, what happens when we are moved from the appreciation of a difficulty of reality to a philosophical or moral problem apparently in the vicinity. Amina responded by returning to rough ground, telling me how one of her sons, who had previously had a very good relationship with Nuriati, became troubled by visions of her in his sleep. He went as far as metropolitan France to escape her and has felt better since his arrival there. Voiced in a medium in a distant village, the spirit who had possessed both their father and Nuriati told Amina that Nuriati had given him a goat to do her bidding. Amina now admitted that this was the main thing that troubled her about Nuriati, that she could turn on Amina's own son, that her son's life was damaged. That's why she broke with Nuriati, though she never told her directly. I suspect she also retained some doubt that Nuriati had actually done this. Certainly she was not full of the hostility that Mariam and Musa exhibited. Both Mariam and Musa told me it was too early to fix things. They each suggested that when I next return to my aunt, I will see that things are fine, everybody will be getting along. But they said, not yet. Their relatives, who observed the situation with sadness, were less optimistic and condemned their stubbornness. An aunt, Zara, with whom I spoke, said she felt very sorry for Nuriati, sick and alone. She thought Mariam should just get over it. She said, who knows what happened? One says she did Vodaki and one says she didn't. 
And now Musa is claiming to be a victim of Vodiki from, Mar- from Maryam. Enough with the Vodiki. Zara said of the siblings, what if one of them dies? They'll be punished in the afterlife. People are supposed to look out for one another. God will punish them. She added that she herself didn't quite believe in Vodiki. She said, I believe or trust in God. It is Shetuan who put ideas of Vodiki in people's heads. Zara's skepticism concerning Vodiki note comes not from science, but from deep religious commitment. People who believe in Vodiki push God to the background, Zara said, whereas it is God who is the source of our ills and of death. And as she remarked, once you start with Vodiki accusations, you will suffer as it destroys relationships. Later in our conversation, Zara said she had always wondered what Vodiki is. Is it poison or something else? What did I think, she asked me. I said I thought it was mainly words, words that people come to accept, and she agreed. I need to conclude quickly. I've offered a glimpse of what at the out- I noted at the outset Logier calls the moral capacities or competences of ordinary people. It's evident that Vodiki is available as a concept among a set of other concepts I've ra- raised, that it articulates and reinforces unhappy conditions, and that people who find themselves in such conditions would like nothing better than to escape them. The siblings made several attempts to do so, and several relatives of the main protagonists attempted to help them, but they were all caught in an impasse. Sorcery expresses what I want to call, after Sartre, the stickiness of social relations, and once announced, sorcery itself exacerbates that stickiness. It's sticky in the sense that it attaches to to, uh, people to one another in unwanted ways, allowing them neither autonomy nor positive mutual being, and each attempt to pull away to drop the stickiness from one's fingers or one's mind seems only to disperse it elsewhere. Sorcery is, in a sense, itself that very stickiness. With Vodiki, the ugly thoughts of the sorcerer invade the being of the victim. That is what being the victim of sorcery means. Yet the ugly thoughts and sometimes the bad faith of the accuser or ostensible victim invade the being of the accused as well. A circuit is formed and it reaches into others. I cannot separate myself from others' ugly thoughts about me, and I cannot break free of the circuit of mutual recrimination. At the same time, despite the viscosity and the viciousness of accusations, positive concerns prevail. People acknowledge their vulnerability to each other, they exhibit mutual care, and they are attentive to their experience. Vodaki is placed in relation to other concepts, such as Shetuan and Rohu, and even God. People are not just caught in their situation, but think about it and try out other descriptions. Even while I disagreed on particulars, I learned much from my conversations with the siblings and admired their supple reasoning. My point is not the truth or untruth of Vodiki, nor is it to discriminate discriminate emic from etic or to dispense with Vodiki as a token of the type anthropologists call sorcery. It is rather that there exists the concept of sorcery in the language game of anthropology We can recognize it when we see it, and we know how to use it. It is useful as a description of Vodaki and as a vehicle for my thoughts in this essay. But Vodaki as a concept is lived with quite differently than the way anthropologists live with sorcery as a concept. I live partially but not fully with Vodaki, enough so I can try to help my friends relatively tactively part of the time, but not enough to be consistent or successful, though in this instance they were not successful either. My attempts were welcomed, but also resented and criticized. My judgmental tone with Musa was a complete failure on my part, as was my dismissal of Vodaki as not real. These were instances of incontinence of the sort I exhibit as a free-spoken, grumpy old professor back home. 
but they were also manifestations of serious engagement and my concern for the siblings, especially Nuriati. I think I was right to push Mariam, if naive to expect results. She cannot acknowledge her own persecution of Nuriati, even as others transposed it to sorcery against Musa. Another factor was that at this moment in the history of Mayat, one could begin to say things like, I don't believe in sorcery, or even I'm an atheist. I took my cue with this respect from other villagers, a minority of the young men and women who had spent time in metropolitan France, but also some pious individuals like Zara and even Nuriati herself. I don't know how Amina heard or received the remark, uttered in frustration when I'd reached the limits of persuasion, but illustrating as well a way of living with the concept of Vodaki. In concluding, I return to Logier. She says, quote, the human is constantly tempted or threatened by inexpressiveness. Citizens of Mayotte are hardly inexpressive, finding multiple ways to articulate and reflect on their condition and to teach the ethnographer. Yet they are evidently also tempted and threatened by inexpressiveness. Their challenge, a challenge, uh, their challenge is to come out of this situation, quote, to come out of the situation of loss of voice, to take back possession of ordinary language, and to find a world that would be adequate for it to regain our contact with experience and to find a voice for its expression, this is the definition of ordinary ethics. This is, again, Logier speaking. Care, understood as attention and perception, is to be differentiated from a sort of suffocation of the self by affect or devotion. Thank you for listening to a very long paper.